Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is we discuss the issues between rural and urban America. My favorite urban friend coming to us from Greater Boston, Medford, Massachusetts, Diane Sullivan. You failed to wear a red shirt today. What are you thinking? I, well, you know what? I We have my friend uh, Dwight Mogler here today, and I thought, ah, I didn't give him the heads up that it's Red Shirt Friday, <laughs> so I didn't want him to be, uh, you know. Oh, left out. You're so right. compassionate. So I wore my animal prints instead. <laughs> yeah. Diane, it's absolutely impossible for you to meet me, a fellow pig farmer from Northwest Iowa. You can't possibly be hooking us up. I am. I'm so excited. Um, I This is my first time being able to introduce two of my favorite people in agriculture. So Trent, Dwight, and I'm just excited to have this conversation, to be here with both of you today. I actually know tons more about Dwight than Dwight knows about me. <laughs> Welcome, Dwight. I'm not sure if that's a good thing, but I see yeah. it is. <laughs> it, well, I guess I don't know what Dr. Tim has told you, but I know how much he's told me. And he's always said, Trent, we need to get down there to the mugglers and, and check it out. These guys, these families are just doing a fantastic job. I'm like, I will, Tim. I will. Well, I haven't, but you're here now. So thanks, Diane. Absolutely. And, and I have had the good pleasure to go and visit with Dwight and his family on his farm in Iowa. What'd you experience? Um, well, it was, it was pretty fascinating to me. Um, you know, Dwight, this was, let's see, back in 2017, and I was invited to speak at a Young Leaders in Agriculture event in South Dakota. And I think Dwight just found out I would be there, reached out, sent me an email and said, hey, while you're here, would you like to come and see our operation? And um, I was so pleased. Um, uh, Dwight's his his daughter Janae gave me a tour, um, mm-hmm. and it was just it was just fascinating to me. You know, my first time on a large scale farm, um, so of course it was a learning experience. And you know, I often share this story because I did have a bit of a a scare. Um, you know, so Dwight, I don't know if you want to talk about your operation, and maybe we can get into. Um, I can share a bit about uh, my visit out there with you all. So we know what Dwight's going to say, but before we get to that, <laughs> I, I really want to know what your first thought was because you go to a dreaded CAFO, one of these concentrated animal feeding operations. What are your first thoughts? Well, my first thought was, um, okay, you know, understanding, uh, you know, biosecurity, you know, having like all the, the precautions. Um, did you get to shower? I did, of course. Oh, nice. Uh, Yep. On my way in and on my way out. Um, And it was, you know, I guess it was almost as I expected in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I was prepped. uh, It was a fantastic tour. And I know that not everybody has the opportunity to do that. So I am so grateful. Um, It was learning a bit more about the technology, you know, just even how, 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 how much care is taken into the nutrition um, that the animals are fed and learning, you know, how they go through. And again, Dwight can explain this far better than I can, but, you know, where they go through and there's a mark and they're red and, and it's, you know, and then the, the feed is um, according to what their needs are. But there was this one there, a couple of the sows got 
into a little beef while we were um, in the stall itself. And to me, that was, um, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So I was, uh, you know, about four feet tall concrete walls. So in my mind, as this, you know, scuffle was happening, I'm thinking I've got to just get up onto this wall and there's my safety. Um, but, you know, because as, you know, as sows do, um, they tussle once in a while. So, but um, it, I was able to sort of collect myself, you know, my first time. Um, it was it was a bit scary uh, in that moment. Um, but I was just so appreciative to be able to see the operation and confirm exactly what I had come to know uh, during my question three cam- campaign here in Massachusetts that dealt with confinement of animals. Um, that Dwight and his family, did they were doing exactly what I anticipated that I would see, which is caring for the animals. Um, you know, in, in the most efficient ways um, to see, you know, and, and to have somebody explain to me uh, what happens to the animal's waste, um, you know, and how that is set up and it's collected and, um, you know, and used for, for other purposes. So, again, just confirming what I've come to know about the farmers and ranchers, the good folks who feed us, is that they are caring for their livestock. Uh, they are looking out for the environment. And they're just wonderful people. Um, you know, I just, I had such a fantastic time. I regretted that I could only spend a few hours with them before I had to head back to South Dakota. Um, but it was an amazing experience. I'm pretty sure Dwight could find a way to get you to shower in, shower out every day, if that's really what you want to do. <laughs> in in the booth, in the suit, I could do that. Diane had the time, we've got the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know he needs a fairing house manager somewhere on that place that can tender to those baby pigs on a daily basis. And Diane, you'd be perfect. Yeah, and I got to hold a baby pig. Like you know, I saw the whole operation. Um, you know, it was it was fascinating. So Dwight, uh, you and I spend countless hours trying to explain what. Diane just uh, witnessed, and we put sows in gestation yeah. crates for the protection of the sow. It's nothing else, and now she saw it with her own eyes. If we could only create that opportunity for 331 million Americans. Yep. So what um, I'll explain to you further, uh, Trent, is um, our family uh had a decision. I call it a 40 year decision, right? So you only get opportunity to build the farm about every 40 years. If you build a good quality farm and that is our farm's history, we actually got into um, modern pig production in 1976. I was, uh, I turned 11 years old that summer. I'm the fifth of seven. So, I mean, yeah, I got to do a little bit of the pine handle work, you know, grab the shovel and help, you know, that type of stuff. I didn't get operate equipment, but uh, I mean, I've got childhood memories of building that farm that are like yesterday. And, I'm, you know, that, that was 1976. 40 years later, well, actually it was 41 when Diane was on our farm, but 40 years later, we made the decision to build the next generation farm. And quite frankly, next generation, that they're the ones running the farm. Um, you know, our father was very instrumental in um, helping get his sons, myself and my brothers, uh, established in uh, agriculture. And like my father, who's my hero, uh, we're doing the same for our children. And it's not just our sons, it's our daughters as well. And I'll be quite honest with you, Trent, um, our daughters are going to run circles around our sons. Uh, It's a woman's world anymore. And uh, we have learned that uh, a lot of the women on our farms uh, 
they raise the bar pretty high and they set the bar for our entire team. In fact, my daughter, Janae, who, who you referred to, Diane, um, I call her the mother of the farm and we don't use titles. Uh, she's our human's resource director. She onboards, she recruits, she trains, she takes care of the needs of our people. Um, those who are on our team, uh, we call them family and, and it's truly a family farm, whether they have bloodlines that are Mogler genetics or not. Uh, they're all our family and that's how we take care of our people and 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 then of course our people are the ones who take care of the animals and that's what their passion is. But let me finish my story, Tramp. When we made that decision to build that farm, we knew that we would be living with this farm for the next 40 years. And at the end of the day, we have a customer. And more and more, our challenge, as you well know, you dedicated your life to this challenge, Trent, is Multiple generations, our customer I'm talking of, multiple generations away from the farm. And so they have an expectation. Uh, they have a perception. Uh, and we have to find that balance between perception and reality and what mm -hmm. we can realistically do on the farm. So we did a lot of time doing our homework. We're from Iowa. I don't know if you know that, Trent, but uh, Iowa is known to have one of the best education systems in the world. So we no, know how to do it. I was our unaware. Homework. Unaware. We, well, pretty close to Nebraska and uh, and some of our neighbors, but <laughs> no, I didn't know right I had there. a good education base. <laughs> that, that's what I was unfamiliar with. Okay, okay. So anyway, we built a group housed gestation system, mm -hmm. and the stalls that Diane saw are only for the animals that aren't pregnant, and so those are mating pens. And so those are the only individual housed animals uh, in the gestation barns are those who are waiting to be mated. Um, and of course, that is done in the presence of a male, the boar, um, but artificially inseminated. Unfortunately, Trent, the male's role has been extremely diminished in this process. It's a woman's world, literally, uh, at the reproduction and lactation facility, our sow farm. And uh, once they have been mated and are no longer expressing estrus, having their heat cycle, they are immediately removed from the mating pen, the individual mating pen, and uh, placed into large pens uh, with roughly 250 to 300 uh, uh, animals in the pens. They have paddocks. They actually have their little clusters where they nest together. Uh, uh, Dwight, um, that's Dwight I'm going to ask you to pick it technology. up from from clusters when we come back I'm at that time when I have to say folks you need to watch this stand at Paxton County on Netflix we are off and running on a red shirt Friday we'll be back with more after this welcome back to Roll Route Trent Luce alongside Dwight Mogler and Diane Sullivan hitching us up from Boston fantastic Dwight I, I, first of all you are doing a tremendous job in educating the non-farm public because you just walk through that like a consumer advocate, not like a farmer. You explained every single aspect, creating the visual in a way that we have not typically done, which is not in farmer lingo. Secondly, uh, there's still a boar well, providing that semen in large quantities that serves a purpose and that sow cannot asexually reproduce. The, the male is still important. Thirdly, there was another male there getting the attention and getting that sow in the right frame of mind. So the male is not completely rendered useless. 
<laughs> I thought it important to walk through that. <laughs> and I'll, I'll add, friends, oh. that when I walked in, the male was prancing around. Um, yeah. So I, I saw I, I saw the boar do his job. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I, Dwight, I so, know. Go ahead with your yep. your clusters. You were you start. I, I had to interrupt you. You were talking about yep. your sows clustering. Yep. yep, yep, yep. So even though we've got large groups, they still like to nest with their friends, right? And so we have three sided paddocks within this large pen, and it's amazing uh, the behavior. They will always nest with the same friends, and so in these paddocks, groups of ten to twelve. Uh, sows will nest together and they actually back into these pens with their eyes, their head facing out into the, what we call the, the walkways in the pens, because they like to open their eyes and watch what's going on. I mean, you know, no different than you or I, right? You're not going to stick your head in a corner. They're going to back in, lay down, uh, cast an eye on all the activity that's going on in their domain. I mean, they are very well aware of their surroundings. They're an incredibly intelligent animal. And so we have them identified with electronic uh, transponders in their ears. And so uh, they, at their own choosing, can go through the electronic sow feeder. Well, electronic sow feeder identifies who they are uh, based on their stage or how many days in their gestation period, which is roughly 114 to 116 days. Um, and based on their body condition, uh, meaning what is their, um, uh, what, you know, what is their, their, what well, we, we, we call it back fat cover. Cause that's a good indication of, uh, of, uh, their body condition. And then also based on their age, are they still growing or are they maintaining their skeletal size? And so based on that information, what we have in the, uh, you know, in the, in the software, uh, the database, um, they get so many servings of feed while they're in that uh, electronic sow feeding station. So I call it punches on their meal ticket. How many punches do they have on their meal ticket when they go into that sow feeding station? And they can only get the maximum that's allowed in a day. And uh, they can visit the sow feeding station multiple times, but they only have so many punches on their meal ticket every day. And so we do control their nutrition to be very specific to what their needs are. So they're never limited, but yet we don't let them exceed either. And I'm sure glad my wife doesn't have an electronic feeding station for me because I exceed my nutritional requirements. You are lying. You're absolutely lying to us. Your wife totally tells you every day, Dwight, you should not have that much ice cream. She is she is your electronic feeding station. So, unfortunately, you're correct. You're, you're <laughs> correct. <laughs> so, you might both of you actually might find this interesting. Uh, we have 100 sows at our place, and we have all purebreds, mm-hmm. Dwight. And I know that you have a white line, highly mm-hmm. prolific sows. Uh, two things that I wanted to we share: don't. we we have our sows in a uh, deep bedded hoop barn with four pins, yeah, and. Three of those pins mm-hmm. actually have the Agra system uh, electronic feeding station and have exactly what you just described in a hoop barn. Um, yeah, yeah, you know all about it. I, but I still don't like group gestation because these sows are so mean. The reason those sows back into those stalls is because of safety and, and they're just keeping their eyes open and wondering who's going to come. Because Diane nailed it. 
what she saw is what people need to understand. Sows are fighting if they're awake. The only time they don't look for somebody to fight. But in all fairness, what we've learned through your system is that I probably have the worst case scenario because I have like 40 to 60 sows in a pen. And from a pecking order standpoint, it's not quite big enough. And what we've learned through science is that if you have 250 animals in a pen, they kind of lose track of who the boss is. So they're just afraid of everybody. And it's the absolute best pecking order you can have. You took the words right out of my mouth, Trent, because that's what we have learned. Animal behavior specialists have studied the behaviors of these extremely intelligent animals. And they realize that uh, the pig, as intelligent as they are, after about 100 different uh, pen mates, everybody kind of looks the same. And so it's really difficult for them to be the dominant animal in the pen. And that's their nature, right? That's their God-given nature. Yeah. Uh, everybody wants to be king on the mountain, right? I mean, no different than we were on the playground when we had snow piles back in school, right? The big kids were always the king on the mountain. Did you play that out in Boston? Of course. <laughs> big snow banks. <laughs> Queen of the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a Midwest experience, Midwest childhood experience. You know what I'm talking about, Trent. King oh, on the mountain, true. right? Uh, I still do that, by the way. Yeah. So anyway, so the nature of the pig, obviously, is everybody wants to be uh, socially dominant. But if you get the group large enough, um, it's kind of a a lost cause, so to speak. And so nobody really can be um, the most dominant animal in the pen. And so because of that, it actually um, allows them to be more content and more complacent when you do house them in large groups. We did our homework, as I referred to uh, earlier. Uh, not all group housing systems are created alike. And so we, our family, made the very conscious decision that if we're going to do group housing, animal welfare standards are not going to be compromised. And so what we have had to do because of our group housing is we've had to elevate the level of animal husbandry skills. And so we actually have very highly skilled uh, animal behavior uh, herdsmen. Uh, They recognize um, when somebody misbehaves, we actually can remove them from the pen. And so basically think of it as the the teacher at recess blowing the whistle. Uh, That's what our animal care uh, specialists, our herdsmen do. If there's somebody misbehaving, and the ironic thing is quite often, Trent and Diane, what we find out is when they're misbehaving, which, which means they're being aggressive, right? They're mm-hmm. trying to uh, uh, dominate their pen mates. Quite frankly, it's the fact that they're not pregnant. So the pregnant females are more content. And right. so what we have learned is the key to managing aggression is to do what we want to do in a sow farm is just to make sure we do our best at making sure the animals stay productive. And I don't mean to be crude, but a pregnant sow is a productive sow. If she's not pregnant or if she's not lactating, um, we build a very expensive uh, hotel for our animals. And uh, we like to have 100% occupancy. And, uh, you know, they don't pay their own way. We pay their own way. Um, and so our expectation is that if they're going to get a seat at the table. If they're going to live in our hotel, uh, they have to pay their way by producing pigs because that's at the end of the day, it's the pigs that take care of my family. And my family includes all the people who care for our pigs. 
Diane, I'm assuming you don't want to draw any analogies to the aggression of a pregnant female compared to a sow. <laughs> Not going to go there. But, you know, I will say in in having, you know, because I'm learning terms like the paddocks. I didn't know, like, what to call that little three-sided thing because mm-hmm. I wanted to share, you know, like that bear. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a tough chick. Um, but... What what had happened, we had sort of, Janae and I, we had crossed down like the first line of paddocks. And as the, the sows started to scuffle, we still had the other side of the paddocks to go through. So about another 150 to 200 sows to walk past. And when the scuffle happened on the right side of us, all of the sows on the left side that I still had to walk past, it was as if in unison, they all stood up. And looked over at Janae and I, who were standing there. And that's when I think I grabbed Janae's arm, like, are they are they going to start making their way to us? Like, how do I get out of here? Because I've got some distance between me and the exit. Funny um, thing so is, that's exactly what they were looking for. How do I get out of here? Because the strangers <laughs> yeah. just entered my hotel. As to what calls it. And Diane, I have to interrupt you, but I'll bring you back to grabbing Janae's arm. When we come back, before I let you go, I want to remind you about Certified Piedmontese, creating the opportunity to add value to the beef cattle. In this case, we're talking about a value based upon tenderness because the Piedmontese cattle, which originate from Italy, but have been truly Americanized by Lone Creek and Lakeview Colony and Jerry a hofer and folks like that we've made it so that they calve easy they grow fast they stay healthy and they generate tender beef now all that is left out of that equation is that we need to make sure the cattleman is being rewarded properly and getting paid a higher percentage of the consumer's food dollar and that's why dwight the cattleman gets a 180 dollar premium over market price steers and heifers at the same steer base so get details from Marlon Will about adding value, capturing the value from Lone Creek Cattle Company, second half of Rural Route on a Red Shirt Friday after this. Welcome back to Rural Route, Trent Loose, breaking my own rules. Just about ask a question during the break. Uh, Dwight, just quickly, because I want to get back into Diane's uh, grabbing Janae's arm. Is this a bedded barn? It is not. So it is a modern facility um, that has... Uh, you know, very controlled ventilation system. Uh, so again, in the pig world, uh, environment is everything. So when we don't have bedding and they're housed on concrete, uh, warm, dry, draft-free, right? I mean, they still have bedrooms, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, obviously a bed of straw is uh, more comfortable than sleeping on uh, concrete. But uh, just the uh, limitations in our farm don't allow uh- us... I'm going to jump in and interrupt you, Dwight, because you said something I don't agree with. I don't know. I use bedding because that's how the barn is set up. And and bedding is a tool that I use because we don't have the same absolute environmental controls that you do. We have a hoop barn, which means we rely on inputted air. And so you need to have bedding. But I'll tell you what, uh, I have bores that are, I bed in concrete pens and they, by the way, Diane, have a six-inch concrete wall because boars dislike being boars. <laughs> and uh, I'm amazed at the number of days those boars lay on the concrete instead of the bedding because it's more comfortable for them. So your job as a, a stockman is to make sure that the environment is to minimize the stress 
It may be with bedding. It may not be with bedding, but you're providing that draft-free, dry environment, and they they like laying on concrete. So for us just to make the blanket statement, which people that are marketing pork usually do, they have to be bedded all of the time. No, that's not right. You have to allow the producer to use the tool necessary to create the least amount of stress for the animal. Let the producer decide how to do this. Yeah, yeah. No, you're exactly right. And, uh, and, and bedding, I mean, that was part of our history, right? I mean, we used to always have X number of acres of oats or other small grains, uh, which we hardly find anymore in Iowa. And right. it wasn't so much about needing those grains as was needing the straw that came from those fields for bedding because we didn't have um, these capital intensive investments that we have today. These expensive hotels were campgrounds back in the day and there wasn't RVs. It was tents, right? I mean, A-frame huts and uh, you have a windbreak so that the north wind protects you, but you're still in ambient air temperature, whatever God sends that day. Uh, whatever the temperature is outdoors, that's the temperature inside your uh, barn. <laughs> Yeah, and by the way, our birth to weaning mortality in that period of time might have been 40%. Today, if it's 4%, you're trying to figure out what's going wrong. You're correct. Yeah, yeah. And so we've actually hosted, obviously, Diane, um, but probably one of, and Diane, believe me, you're right up at the top of the list as one of our number one experiences for guests on the farm. But we had a great opportunity with the um, uh, harvest partner that uh, we work with primarily, and that would be Hormel Foods. So Hormel Foods uh, went to their customer, uh, Marriott. Uh, of course, Marriott, we think of them as a hotels, but uh, Marriott's uh, have incredible number of kitchens where they prepare meals, not only for their hotel guests, but for their convention and conference guests. They provide meals in a lot of cafeterias. Uh, so, so, I mean, Marriott serves a lot of people uh, meals every day. Um, now during COVID, that's been disruptive, obviously, but that's that 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 that'll that'll come back, or in fact, is in the process of coming back. So anyway, we brought some of the top uh, supply chain uh, folks from both uh, Marriott, and I say we. It was Hormel Foods that brought them to our farm. I mean, it's kind of an interesting story. They flew the Hormel jet from Austin, Minnesota, to Reagan National in D.C. because in Maryland is where uh, Marriott's uh, world headquarters are, right outside of Washington, D.C., as well as Avendra. Avendra is a supply chain partner that not only Marriott, but a lot of other um, large uh, institutional-type customers uh, that uh, that buy pork products, Avendra uh, uh, folks were along as well. And they came to see the group housed system, exactly like we've been talking about. And uh, and quite frankly, as they had the same experience as Diane did walking through the pens, they were literally, uh, um, literally um, enthralled. And, uh, and, and it just gave them a sense of appreciation of what we do in spite of not providing the conventional um, housing method of stalls. And that was that farm that I talked about that we built in 1976. One of the first stalled farms in our county back in 1976. Uh, one of the first indoor gestation barns in the county. So so anyway, from where we went from 40 years ago to where we are today, they were absolutely amazed. But you know what, Trent? And I think Diane might allude to this too. The most rewarding part of showing our friends uh, from Hormel as well as their customers uh, with Marriott and Avendra was taking them to, um, I call it the OB Gin Ward, um, it's the birthing center. It's a lactation center. Uh, in the industry, we call it the farrowing barn. And uh, Diana, maybe in all fairness, 
What was your impression when you went into the birthing center and the lactation facility, which we call the farrowing barn on our farm? Yeah, you know, um, I think, and in, in Trent alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, you know, the system, and I don't know what you would call it that they were in, I could see why, um, because I could see, you know, just the size of the sows and how easy it would be for them to roll over, um, you know, and perhaps crush one of um, the little piglets. But, you know, of course, um, you, you know, it all being so new to me, um, it was just, again, just a fascinating experience, um, you know, and, and to go into, gosh, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's, it's really hard for somebody, again, as we talked about, somebody so detached from agriculture, um, you know, it, it just, it was just really an eye opening experience. Um, but I could see where the, you know, the, the piglets need to be protected, you know, from, um, it, it just, it makes sense. And I think that, and this is what I learned during the question three campaign. You know, we've talked about this trend where uh, we had the Humane Society of the United States here in my state in Massachusetts, um, you know, forcing us to, you know, purchase uh, cage-free eggs and, um, and, and really, and again, in, in, in the Humane Society of the United States came to Massachusetts because we were an easy target because we don't grow our own food. You know, essentially we import 90% of the food that we consume from folks like yourself. And so it was really an attempt to um, control farming that's happening in other states, right? So, um, you know, and, and I think in, in post-question three here in Massachusetts, which is what brought me to the Midwest and uh, brought me to your farm, um, has been connecting and really making that connection. You know, I am an anti-hunger advocate because I've had personal experience mm -hmm. with hunger. You know, right now we have over 50 million people in this country who are struggling to eat. And the last thing that we need to be doing is uh, conforming uh, to particularly, I'll name them, I'll, I usually say special interest groups, but we're talking about animal rights extremists. Uh, those people who do not want us eating meat, they want animals out of agriculture. And I think that what we demonstrate is really a natural alliance um, because at the end of the day, I don't, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, where your politics are. I think we all agree that everybody should have access and consistent access to, to affordable, nutritious food. And that's such a personal choice. Um, you know, what we, what we consume, what we put in our bodies. And so I have, and this is, I really wanted to sort of draw out um, this connection that we all have. I, in, my, in the many times I visited out to the Midwest, um, in Trent, I spent time with you. We spent a weekend in Indiana uh, visiting with the young adults from Team Purebred. There is such an amazing um, thing that agriculture does around leadership development with its young leaders. And I'm able to come into these spaces, and, and you've both seen me in action, and to really come in and connect with these young adults and to share my story um, to, to talk about why I engaged with agriculture, because it doesn't feel like a natural partnership. Um, but, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. And when our when my ability to afford to feed my family and that of my community, um, when that's under attack, uh, there's a natural alliance. And I think more and more that farmers and ranchers and low income consumers uh, if we could join forces to really push back and really talk about these issues, 
it's it's tough to put in a soundbite because if somebody asks me, hey, Diane, do you want to prevent cruelty to animals, which is what the Humane Society put on our ballot question here in 2016, the natural response is yes, of course. And for those of us, again, who are so removed from the farm, we might assume that Dwight um, in Iowa, you know, is potentially we might see a, you know, a video um, that somebody releases and they might think, oh, gosh, is that where my food comes from? So I'm all about transparency. So when question three came up here in Massachusetts, there would be one farm that would be impacted. I had to get to the farm to meet the farmer. Um, You know, when I hear farms come under attack, you know, um, you know, pig farmers and and like, no, let me go visit. Let me see with my own eyes what's really going on behind the scenes. And again, walking out with the reassurance, it, it just makes sense that farmers would want to care for their livestock because as Dwight pointed out, they, they want them to produce. So they need them to be healthy. So, you know, I'm really in this space trying to clear up the fodder for a lot of us, you know, urbanites who might not know um, how our food is grown. Or we might learn from a Facebook post, not understanding who's behind that, who's driving that. And so I think the key here in the agriculture world, from my perspective, is keep sharing your story and keep investing in your young leaders. Um, Trent, you know, we uh, spending that whole weekend um, was such an amazing experience. And you know the, the, the relationships that we, that we developed and just the things that we were able to talk about. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep making those introductions. You know, those, the, they, they call me Auntie Diane, you know, like some people might say, what, what does an urban grandmother have in common with a, you know, 18-year-old farmer from Nebraska? <clears throat> a lot more than people might think. Well, um, we, we determined that weekend in, in Greenfield, Indiana, to be exact, uh, just how much we do have in common that we didn't know we had in common with the kids that were present. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't um, I, I don't share other people's stories. You know, their narratives right. are for them to share. But there was one young adult. And I think we all just came to this realization, like the moment got heavy when people start saying, um, you know, because here's the thing, too. Uh, Diane, here's mm-hmm. the thing. I so, so often have to say we have to take a break. And it's always you that I have to interrupt. And my mom said, be polite to women. So I'm sorry about this, but this is what I got to do. Neogen, providing the opportunity to look at the genomics. I assure you, Dwight knows exactly what's going on with the alleles and the genetics that he is using in his operation because we can no longer take a chance. We use Neogen to identify meat quality on every single boar that we have at our place and what we're going to accomplish. And we test every calf. People are testing chickens and turkeys. We need to know exactly what genomics are present and use those genetics time and time again. That's why there's one boar over there getting the ladies ready, and there's another boar doing the job. That's what it's all about, identifying the ones that do the job. Neogen makes it happen with their identity program. Get more details at neogen.com. We're back with the last segment of Roll Route, and Diane gets to start it off for sure this time after this. Welcome back. Roll route, Trent Loose alongside Dwight Mogler, Diane Sullivan, as I fiddle with my clock. There we go. Uh, I had a great story I wanted to share, Dwight, but I I promised Diane. Yep. Okay. Young leaders, that's really where it's at. Yeah, absolutely. They they are the future of ag. Um, and, And open, you know, like this is really, in the work that I do around centering policy, really, like, 
centering policy around people with lived experience or lived expertise. You know, I'm a policy expert who happens to have lived experience and hunger, homelessness and poverty. And I bring all of that to the table. And and I feel strongly, um, you know, in the agriculture world, people where I'm fr- from, we don't know what farmers are doing. Like, tell your story, share your story. And this work is really centered around building relationships. Um, and and that takes time. And, and I feel like there is an incredible opportunity here, particularly with young leaders in ag who are, you know, really open. I've, I've had so many come to me say, you know, I think I'm changing my major in school to communications because you've helped me to understand how important it is for agriculture to share their story. Because if you're not controlling your own narrative, um, just like as happens with low-income people, if I'm not controlling my narrative, somebody else is calling me a fraud. Oh, you don't really need that help. Oh, you're probably hiding income. Like there's so many things that go on. Same thing happens with farmers. If you're not sharing your story, then some the Humane Society of the United States, namely, but other groups are going to be sharing your story for you. And they're not going to paint you in a good light. Um, so control that narrative. And I think that the young, the young generation of farmers um, is hearing that message and they, and they are taking control of that narrative. So it's very exciting to see because at the end of the day, when that happens, we're going to reach my goal of reducing hunger. Well, and Dwight started this whole discussion off talking about how it's the next generation at his place that's already Absolutely. taken over the lines, driving the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, Diane, uh, if I could give you a big hug, I would, but uh, we're not next to each other like we were last Friday when my family was out in Boston. But it was sure great to be with you, Diane, and you are invigorating. And, uh, you know, what you said, if I can capture it in a, in a, in a nutshell, is uh, what we in ag need to do is we need to understand that if we're not at the table, we will be on the menu. And we need to advocate. I mean, we're kind of from humble backgrounds, uh, humble environment. I mean, we're not taught uh, to toot our own horn. I mean, that's kind of the Christian value to uh, not be proud, right, uh, and let other people decide. Well, unfortunately, people are deciding without good information. And I've shared this with you before, Diane. Uh, you know, I talk about the one percenters, 99%. And, and this is my my estimation, and I, I don't think I'm too far off. But 99% of all people are reasonable. And when reasonable people are equally informed, seldom will they disagree. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're given the opportunity, like I had with you, Diane, like we had with the folks from Avendra and Marriott, and if I can just finish that story a little bit, what really amazed them, they were there to see the group housed system on our farm. When we took them to the birthing center, the farrowing barn, and they found out the level of care that we provided to that newborn piglet during its golden hour, no different than a newborn calf, lamb, any mammal, right? Colostral intake during that golden hour, that first hour of birth is so crucial for the health of that animal their entire life. And so we dry the pigs off, we get them warm, we let them have an opportunity to uh, get that colostral intake. If they have a large litter, which many of our mothers do, 15, 16 pigs is not uncommon. We will take the firstborn. We will huddle them over in a corner, uh, put them in a little 
hot box, we call that. So we can do what's called split suckling. So we can let the last born pigs have less competition and get their cholesterol intake. And our friends from Marriott and Avendra were just totally amazed at the level of care that we give when the pigs are most vulnerable. And so, again, controlling the narrative is very important for us in ag. Um, you know, from their viewpoint, those who oppose what we do, they've never been on a farm. They haven't walked in our shoes. They don't understand. And they're the one percenters. And so let's not let the one percenters control the narrative. Let's engage the 99% to choose to be reasonable. And being reasonable is a choice, right? And I think every one of us has to uh, live with ourselves. uh, And and most people uh, choose to be reasonable because the fact is we do have to live with ourselves. Dwight, you remind me of a meeting that I don't remember meeting you, but you had to have had a family member present. And it was in Austin. Uh, it was a meeting put on by uh, Dr. Tim Lola and his veterinary crew. And I know that all of his clients were there. It was on April 1st, whatever year it was, probably four years ago. And I was just so fortunate to be a part of that meeting. But the presenter before me was a young lady who worked on studying bio, biome the entire gut bacteria and how the biome reacts. And yep. she had dedicated so yep, much of the her microbiome. Research. Yeah. The microbiome. And she had dedicated so much of her research yep. to studying how those newborns, in this case, it was pigs start inoculating themselves. And I, and so I, I thought of it That's because right. you create this sterile environment in your farrowing barns and it's better than a hospital, quite frankly. And, and this, this, she walked through how important it was that once the pig comes from the vaginal birth and then it starts nosing its way, it's looking for that first drink of life until it finds that teat and it's making its way around there. She said that pig is actually ingesting things that's creating that microbiome that's vitally important for health. And if you if you were there, you will remember Rob Renneman standing up saying, wait a minute. We invest great time and energy in making sure these pigs have a sterile environment and we take them out, we wipe them off, and we get them that first drink of life because we think it's better for them. Are you telling me we're hurting them? (laughs) And she said, yes. (laughs) And Rob, I'll never, I remind him of this all the time. And he says, well, then we're going to keep doing that (laughs) because it's like, I just can't get my head around. But but for both of you, I, I bring it up today because. When was the last time we went into a place where we didn't see somebody sanitizing every single thing on the counter? We have a hand sanitizer right there all of the time. We are recreating that same microbiome problem with the medical advice that we've been given in 2020, 2021. And we've got Dr. Ted Fogarty who's commenting in here. He can weigh in on that. But I see this as being a grave danger. And I know that you at some level are contributing to it on the farm. But it's just like sterile's got to be better, right? No, that's not the way God made us. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, Trent, because um, what is the end goal? Well, our end goal is food for, you know, affordable protein choices for people around the world. I mean, that's our end goal. I mean, we're all about affordable food. Diane and I, our hearts are so close together on that issue. And so we work very hard to remember what our true purpose is. But that pig that we raise it will be harvested at roughly seven months of age, six to seven months of age. So we think much differently about 
keeping things sterile for this pig that's going to be with us for six to seven months so we can maximize feed efficiency, maximize growth, reduce our carbon in, uh, our footprint, reduce our use or our nece- the necessary use of antibiotics. And so that is a much different objective than the reproductive female that's going to be on our farm for a couple of years. And so there we expose them to pathogens to build their immunity so then they can pass that on to their newborn piglets through their cholesterol um, antibodies. So I cannot wait for Diane Sullivan to go throughout the Boston, Medford, Massachusetts area telling pregnant women you would be much better off for your baby if you would expose them to pathogens instead of living in a sterile bubble while you're pregnant. (laughs) Yeah, set me up. Sure, well, Trent. No, they, <laughs> truly, that's the science. The science documents that, this. Because they deal with individual health. They don't deal with herd health. Uh, we've had a great lesson this past year on herd health, have we not? Yeah, exactly. But I wanted, I just want, Diane is the master of communications. And I want to see her communicate this to a group of pregnant women. Listen, my 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 days, my childbearing days are behind me. I'm just yeah. looking after the grandkids now. So don't, yeah. don't get, get me these, in trouble. You got all no. these pregnant women that need to know they need to be exposing themselves to peanuts, and then their kids wouldn't have peanut allergies. Yeah, well, you know, I, I have six children of my own, so um, you know, pregnancy is not something foreign to me. Um, and I, I tend to agree, you know, with my children. You know, of course, you want to keep them clean, but I've all get. Get that dirt under your fingernails. Um, you know, it's it, that's always been my approach. Um, but, you know, again, I think it comes back to the same thing. Where are people getting their information from? And we have this super highway of information um, called social media and anybody can say anything and, you know, and folks follow. And so it really is upon us to be doing our research um, and, and, and from trusted sources. And if I'm going to learn about agriculture, I'm going to go to a farmer. I'm not an animal rights extremist um, who, you know, as Dwight pointed, so many probably have many have never been on a farm um, and they simply want animals out of agriculture. So, of course, they're going to paint the picture that's convenient for them. Um, and, and unfortunately, they dupe folks along the way. Um, so, you know, I know that not everybody is going to have the opportunity to go out and visit Dwight's farm in Iowa like I did. I was very blessed. Um, but more and more, if we can, you know, get more farmers, you know, folks like yourself, Trent, that are out here just telling the good truth about agriculture, um, you know, that that we do have the world's uh, most abundant and and most, you know, efficient food system in, in the world. And that's something to be celebrated and that's something to be shared. Um, but, you know, we also have to acknowledge on the flip side of that, despite all this abundance, we have an extreme problem with food insecurity and hunger. And and that's largely in part due to that folks can't access food or that they can't afford the food. And I think in, you know, in as an anti-hunger activist um, and working in that space, I, I, I say it all the time in the anti-hunger world, we're not talking at all, not even just not enough. We're not talking at all about the cost of our food. You know, it's the response to the, the cost of food is going up when we need to increase the SNAP program, the, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, which I completely agree with, that the benefits right now, I know, Trent, we disagree. To me, the benefits are adequately inadequate. They're too low because the cost of food is too high. We've got to get at what is unnecessarily driving up the cost of our food. Who's, it, who's standing in between consumers and farmers 
that is, you know, making the profit because I know that it's not necessarily the farmers um, that that are benefiting when you have these food companies who slap these, you know, labels, these very expensive, very confusing food labels um, onto their product and the consumers pay the cost. And I know, of course, you know, increased production is going to be born on the consumer. That's it. Nobody's saying, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, we want this system for animals and we're we're going to pay for that. No, consumers pay for that. Um, and some consumers just can't afford it. Thank you for being consistent, Diane. Once again, I have to say, you're done. We're all done. We've consistently journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. And all three of us remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route. Thanks for a fantastic discussion, Diane.